We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host, Alana Russell. I'm really interested to see what we're talking about today because Alana is our resident co-host for all things medical, but you like to go off piste a little bit sometimes, Alana. So what are we talking about today? Today, we are not talking about something entirely medical research. I will call it maybe more biomedical engineering, chemistry. Um, And we're going to talk with some researchers from the University of Tasmania. And they are working on a new invention, the world's first mobile virus detection device. So we are joined today by our two experts, a professor of chemistry, Michael Bredmore, and a chemistry researcher and PhD student, Mustafa Adel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Michael, I was wondering if I could ask you if you could give us a quick overview summary of your fantastic new invention. What is it? What's it about? Oh, quick overview. That's a that's a tough one. Um, what we're what we're going to try and do is make something similar to what you will have seen at an airport that detects explosives. Uh, so you've got um, what we call a swab where you rub it on a surface. Uh, you then take that and put it in a machine, and then inside that machine, we're going to try and determine a whether or not there's a virus uh, within about two or three minutes. That sounds really fascinating and also a really good analogy because obviously this is going to be more and more important as a, there's a pandemic and people consider international travel. Um, I think this is amazing. But first, because we try and um, explain things as we're going, one of the things I wanted to ask about is what is a virus? Like a lot of people might not actually be sure. We hear about viruses, they're the bugs that make us sick. But Mustafa, I was wondering if you would be able to tell us a bit about what a virus actually is. So it's about a protein part and the DNA, which is assembly. It's like wearing a coat, a DNA wearing a coat of protein. And uh, what does it do? The virus usually, it wears a coat when it gets inside the body to protect itself outside the body. When it gets inside the body, it leaves the coat and the protein part of it, injecting the DNA inside the human cell, and then it replicates, gives the symptoms and the uh, side effects that you see from infecting. This DNA is wearing like a coat, and that, that allows it, that like coat is allowing it to get inside the cells of our body, which is where it causes that sickness. If that's the case, um, what makes, like, how do we actually detect viruses? Sorry, how do we detect viruses normally on surfaces? Because I know you've got this detection device for detecting explosives on surfaces, but why, how, how do we normally pick up on a virus if we don't use a machine like this? There's a couple of ways that we detect viruses at the moment. And using Mustafa's really brilliant coat analogy, I hadn't heard that either, so it's great. Um, we, uh, one, one way, and the, the gold standard way, is that you look for the DNA inside the coat. Uh, so you expose the DNA and you use something called polymerase chain reaction, which essentially just doubles the number of copies of um, molecules that you're detecting until you can get a signal that you can see. So that's what um, most of the diagnostics you'll see around the world are being done with. And they typically take anything from maybe about six hours to two or three days to, to do. The alternative way, which is um, a way that's a little bit quicker, is where you actually target the coat. Um, and the proteins on the coat uh, using um, an antibody. 
Um, now, this is the one where if, if you've read any of the um, newspapers, they'll talk about, um, you know, whether you've got, been exposed to the virus. And what they're going to do is they're going to look for the antibodies that your body produces when it's been exposed. So you can use a similar approach to detecting the virus. That way is typically much quicker. It's maybe five to 30 minutes. Um, but it, but, but the limitation of that one is it typically has very high false positive and false negative rates. Um, so it's not quite as selective. Um, and it's not quite as sensitive as the first approach looking for the DNA, but it's much, much quicker. So, Michael, just to clarify there, what do you mean by a false positive or a false negative? Why, and why would that be a problem? So a false positive is where you've been told you've got the virus and you don't. And a false negative is where uh, you're told you don't have the virus and you actually do. Um, now, a false positive is probably not so bad in the case of a pandemic because what that's going to do is it's going to send you home in, in this case of COVID-19 and you're not going to go anywhere and you're not going to spread it. That's probably acceptable. It's the false negatives that are the real problem because you, you've been told you don't have a virus. So you can now go out and continue your normal life. You can go to work. Um, and all the while you're doing that, you're actually spreading the virus and the pandemic is uh, increasing. So it's the false negatives here that are the really important ones to be able to catch. That's really interesting. And I wonder, is there any reason why the false negative or false positive is more likely with when we're trying to use this antibody test, um, which is what happens when our immune system has already been infected and we've made a response? So why is that more likely to give us a false positive or false negative compared to the polymer PCR, polymer chain reaction, um, DNA extraction method? It's typically because, um, you know, the, the, the way that we target the DNA is just a lot more selective than the molecules that we use to target the, the protein code of the virus. Um, so there's lots of, lots of things that can cross-react and give you a signal um, where, you know, the DNA approach is much, much more selective. Um, and so you get a much greater likelihood of, or, or you, you get more accurate results with the DNA. What is the difference between a virus and a bacteria, just in case people at home are wondering? All I know is that a bacteria is really big and a virus is really small. Um, I, I think a virus is actually alive and a, sorry, a bacteria is, is alive and actually is, um, you know, self-functioning where a virus actually needs a host um, to, to penetrate. So, Mustafa, do you have any better explanation than that? It's the same, yes. So, as Michael said, the virus is an unliving, it's an unliving organism until it comes um, in contact with a human cell or a plant cell, according to what is going to, it is going to infect. The bacteria, it has um, a permanent coat. It has uh, its own integrity. So it's not like the virus that it can uh, release its coat and just inject the um, DNA. No, it's, uh, it's like the human cell. I think that's a really good way to put it. And I also really like the coat analogy. So we could think of a virus as like a bit of a zombie disguising itself in a coach. And then it's having to find someone that it can have a bit of a party with. And then it can <laughs> replicate. And it's like, yes, and now I'm good to go. I have found somewhere where I can live. Whereas a bacteria cell, it's got its own coat. It doesn't need to come to your party. If it doesn't want to, it might. If it benefits it as well. Whereas a virus really depends on you. So I'm really loving this coat analogy. I feel like we're all going to run with it. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. And we're talking with two experts from the University of Tasmania about a really innovative um, way to detect viruses. Stay with us for more in just a moment. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Alana and I'm joined by my co-host Neve. 
And today we are talking with two expert chemistry researchers, Professor Michael Bredmore and Mustafa Adel, about their work developing a new device that is able to detect the presence of viruses on surfaces. So Michael, you previously told us about this PCR um, and antibody um, detection ways, how we detected viruses on surfaces before. Um, Can you walk us through how this new technology works? So how does this detect viruses? Uh, that's a that's a really great question, and there's there's some things that I'm not allowed to say for uh, commercial reasons, but uh, there's a few things that I can. Um, so one of the things that we're going to do is to separate or detect the virus by a process called electrophoresis. So that's essentially where we take a really uh, we take a tube that's about you know half a meter long. It's got a really small hole in it, about the size of a human hair. We fill it with liquid, and we apply a high voltage, and by high voltage, I mean 30,000 volts. Um, and we essentially zap uh, the virus in that uh, tube and, and make them move according to their size and, and how charged they are. Uh, so the other analogy is that, um, you know, we have a swimming race with the virus, and the virus and the other particles that are in there. And based on the time at which they swim through that tube, we can detect and tell which one is which. So that's the approach we're going to take for um, COVID-19 detection and more broadly virus detection. That's really fascinating. And as a reference point, isn't the standard plug socket voltage 12,000 volts? So it's more than double that is the high voltage that you're using, which is pretty Yeah, so what comes out of your socket at home is 240 volts. Oh, wow. Um, so we're, we're up at um, typically the 30,000 volts level. Um, and that, that means that things move pretty quickly when um, you charge them that much. This is a bit of an off-the-cuff question, but where do you get the power from? You obviously can't just plug this machine into the wall. Uh, well, it's, it's, well, we do. Uh, there's a series of, of um, high-voltage uh, high upregulators in the, in the instrumentation. So um, that 240 volts is probably down-regulated initially to 12 volts, and then that 12 volts is then probably um, turned somehow into the 30,000 volts. And, and we, just, we just buy something that's about the size of a, um, you know, a phone um, and we, we've got two wires that plug into our 12-volt supply and out the end comes 30,000 volts when we turn it on. That's a bit like magic to me. You've just uh, you've uh, just taken the, the wall socket and magically made it more. Um, that is engineering <laughs> though, you're right. <laughs> um, thank you yeah, for explaining Yeah, engineering that. magic. Um, so what is the difference then between – you said that this was like the device that you used in the airport for detecting explosives – so what's the difference between detective, detecting explosive substances and detecting these viruses? The, the main difference that we have is uh, the, the chemistry that we use to um, make them swim. Um, and that, that chemistry allows us to uh, tune the swimming speed of each particular virus so that they all swim at a different rate. Um, that's the same thing we do for explosives. So uh, we, again, tune that liquid medium to make explosive molecules that we're looking for come out at particular times. So they've got that bit in common. Um, the, bits that, the bit that's different is the way that we detect them. Um, and so with the, the explosives, we use a, a what's called a conductivity detector. Um, for the viruses, we're going to use a primarily a fluorescence detector. Thank you so much for that explanation, Michael. Um, I actually wanted to ask Mustafa now, before this, we had a quick talk and you told me about another um, purpose that you have for this device. Are you able to tell us a bit about your PhD work and what else you use this technology for? So previously, 15 years ago, Michael started using this device and the, uh, with UTAS and they developed methods for detecting explosives. 
and then they collaborated with Grayscan to build this device. And it's now, I think it's released almost in the airport to detect explosives. As Michael said, we changed um, the fluid that we use and the chemistry that we use for detecting different things. For the COVID situation, we are using different chemistry to detect viruses. For my BHG and my scholarship, I'm using different chemistry to detect some other drugs uh, in pharmaceutical companies because they need this analysis and this technique because it's faster than any other technique. It gives them the results immediately, uh, within five minutes. And usually their experiments or the tests that they do, it takes one day. So what are they trying, what are you trying to detect these extra drugs for, for pharmaceutical companies? And by drugs, by the way, we mean medicines. We we quite (laughs) often just say drugs in the medical research world, but we mean medicines. Um, So what are you detecting on? Oh, yes, actually, if if it's for pharmaceuticals, uh, drugs as well. So you can use it for drug analysis and any pharmaceutical analysis. Usually uh, in pharmaceutical companies, they manufacture uh, batches of drugs in a sequence manner. So between each batch, they have to clean their mixers and their instruments before manufacturing another batch. To do this, they have to be sure that there is no leftovers from the previous batch to the other batch. So they have to do analytical tests and swaps to be sure that there is no residues from the previous batch. Usually these tests take one day. For us and with our uh, technology, it can give these results within five minutes, which will save time for sure and increase the production for them. So this sounds like it would have very far-reaching applications, essentially a rapid diagnostic test to identify virus substances um, or the presence of a virus on a surface, which, you know, as Mustafa has already indicated, you know, it's appropriate to pharmaceuticals and probably, you know, in a whole host of different reasons. You could use this, I would imagine, in policing, for example, when you want to, you know, goodbye sniffer dogs, hello, rapid testing. But also I wondered if I could ask you something in light of the pandemic and travel restrictions about the specificity of this for different viruses. And the this is no more philosophical question. If we are to say we don't want the spread of COVID-19 to occur unless people are vaccinated or, um, you know, if you have it, you've got to self-isolate when you come in unless you can prove that you're, you don't. But why would that stop at one virus in particular? Why would we not screen for sexually transmitted diseases or other viruses that are equally as prolific, um, detrimental to our healthcare systems and wants us to stop discriminating against people at the point of entry into countries for immigration purposes or travel and tourism purposes if this technology could be expanded and applied for other viruses? That is a fascinating question. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure I can really answer it. Um, we, we are primarily developing this to improve, the, I guess, the safety of people. And, and you know, particularly with airlines, I, I see one way it could be used is to screen you before you get on an airplane uh, to see whether you're infectious. And then on the other end, when you get out of the airplane, you screen you again. And if you're still not infectious, then there's a really good chance that there was, you know, you weren't infectious during that flight and the whole flight would be clean if everyone came up positive for both tests. On a smaller scale, I see that we can implement that same thing at a restaurant. Um, and that would then be able to open up our economy more. Uh, what's stopping us from detecting other viruses? Absolutely nothing. Changing the chemistry, we would be able to, I think, detect pretty much any virus that we might want to check, to, to test. What's then stopping us from using that to, you know, perhaps control the type of people we enter into our country or our restaurant? I guess only the nature of people and, and how nice we want to be, I guess. 
Um, you know, that's that's not why we're developing. It could be used for that purpose, but I would like to think it wouldn't be. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, with great power comes great responsibility. And I feel like I quite often um, sit within the transient space of tech and healthcare and quite frequently come back to these philosophical questions of if we make a great advancement, what does that mean for how our society current functions? And um, are, is our societal norms and expectations of what we see as acceptable for screening likely to change? Are those goalposts slowly shifting for what we find acceptable? And, you know, while we need rapid testing, um, how could that then be applied for other things? And what are the unforeseen potential uses for these types of technolo technology? But it's really fascinating. And you're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay tuned. We're in just a moment. We'll be talking a little bit more about this innovative and exciting work that's being done by the University of Tasmania. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about the development of a new device that will be able to quickly detect the presence of viruses in the environment around us. So Mustafa, this work sounds like it needs experts from many different fields. We're talking about viruses, so biology, we're talking about chemistry, we're talking about engineering. Um, are you able to, able to tell us a bit more about the team behind this project? It's a unique project because it is a collaboration between five different universities or schools. Five different schools, I think, at Utah. So we are working with uh, Menzies. We are working with School of Agriculture. I might need Michael to correct if I forgot someone. Uh, we have um, some help for sure. Uh, the engineering part from GrayScan. So uh, it's the most unique uh, project that I have ever worked with because it's a collaboration between different. And honestly, all the people that I'm working with are very helpful and trying to give their best just to solve this problem and to get the best uh, achievements as we can. Do you have any extra people you want to talk about there, Michael? Yeah, so uh, look, we, as Mustafa said, we've got a really great team on this. Um, I think we, we, they were assembled in about 24 hours after an email uh, throughout the university to go, who knows anything about viruses? Um, I, need, I need someone to help me. Um, and so within, within you know, a couple of hours that I had probably a dozen responses uh, the team at the moment is, uh, I'm going to go through the list. So we've got Dr. Emily Flies, who's an epidemiologist and disease ecologist. We've got Dr. David Gell, who's a molecular biologist and protein biochemist. Uh, we've got Associate Professor uh, Guna Kurupia, who's a viral epidemiologist and viral immunologist. We've got Professor Anna King, who's a neuroscientist. We have Professor Callum Wilson, who is a plant pathologist. Uh, Dr. Andrew Flies, who is a non-immunologist and a vaccine uh, and reagent developer, uh, and Sarah Shigda, who's from Deakin University, who's an optimal chemist. Um, so that's our little research team. And then we have people like Mustafa, uh, Pavan, Jocelyn, and Novell, who are um, you know PhD students who have taken a little bit of time out of this study to actually do some of the, the grunt work of this. And then on the other side, we've uh, we've got a partnership with Gray Innovation, who uh, sorry GrayScan, who's uh, the, the company that is um, in responsible for engineering the product, and they've got a team of about 30 uh, scientists and engineers in Melbourne um, who, when we actually get this to work, are going to take what we've done and actually stick it in a box um, and then be able to get it to work for everyone, not just um, you know, world-class experts like Mustafa and Pavan and Jocelyn and, and um, Nova. I just love how multidisciplinary this is and how it's all been in response to this pandemic. Like everyone's just banded together and suddenly started working on this device. 
Um, it's absolutely amazing. I think that's actually a really yeah. important point for the university as a whole. So, like, and I'm sure that you'd be able to talk about this. I feel like, um, you know, Tasmania is very well placed, but even across Australia, I feel like there was an outcry of public need and scientists across the country and indeed across the world dropped what they were doing and were like, what from my services and my skill set can be used? How can we work in different ways to solve a really pressing and urgent problem? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I was I was really blown away with the people that we the number of people that responded and and then you know the effort uh, uh, that people are going through to actually answer my silly questions about what is a virus um, and you know how 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 does the virus work and all these all these silly things that as a, a chemist I I know nothing about. Um, and to, you know, help us make things and, um, and, and, you know, it's, it's really put a lot of people out. Um, and just to, just to see how enthusiastic everyone is with their time, um, and their willingness to be, uh, involved is, is really a great testimony to the people we're working with. And I, I think maybe more broadly scientists as a whole and research as a whole generally want to do something for the good and benefit of the world. Um, and, you know, we're probably all just waiting for that opportunity to come and make a difference, and, yeah. and hopefully for us we can. Speaking of benefiting the world, doing good, um, what do you see is the future of this product? I, I see a whole heap of applications where this product could be really, really neat. Um, the one that I'm uh, – so, so uh, before we started doing viruses, um, about six years ago we started working with bacteria and rapid bacteria detection, and. And I have a PhD student called Tassara who's actually working on trying to detect bacteria on meat and meat processing facilities um, to try and make our food chain safer. Uh, having, having the virus link now really puts us in a really great position to start and do a bacterial viral test in, say, a doctor's surgery. Um, if, you're, if you're aware of the problem with antibiotic resistance, um, you know, this is probably going to be an issue that I think is going to come to hit us really hard in the next two to three decades. Uh, so we've got to start cutting down on our prescription of antibiotics and our use of antibiotics. And um, I think a, a really rapid test that, that a doctor's surgery would tell you whether you've got a viral or bacterial infection within five minutes would cut down on a reasonable amount of um, that antibiotic use in people at least. Maybe not animals, but in people it definitely would. I think that's really fascinating and maybe just to touch on an area that you've already started exploring for a future application of this bacterial use um so and you talked about the food chain so i mean most australians will probably be aware that uh, listeria is something that we're usually uh quite it's on our radar with fruit you know we had that with rock rock melon uh last year so is, would this be in those kind of situations where we need to be really vigilant about different bacteria um affecting our food chains or a rapid um testing would be really useful to first to essentially inform public safety and, and food safety and hygiene measures. I, I guess I'm thinking about this, this would be used in the supply chain by manufacturers or producers, but, you know, I would love to think that we might have one of these at home one day and you bring your rock melon home, uh, you rub it down with essentially a little uh, piece of cloth, you stick it in the machine and it says, hey, there's no listeria here today. Um, it's safe to eat. Um, I, I, I'm not quite sure I can see that happening, but um, I won't give up on that hope. Uh, if we can get it quick enough and cheap enough and reliable enough, then there's actually no reason why that wouldn't be possible. Um, I don't know on, what else we could test. 
even on the manufacturing side, to be able to test that, you know, at the point of entry before it goes onto shelves. Um, again, it's a larger scale than the individual consumer, but it's still, um, you yeah. know, feeding into that chain. So this sounds like an absolutely fascinating area so far, and I feel like there's been so many successes already. I wonder one thing that we don't often get to cover on this show is that process of working with industry and going through to commercialization. Um, and I think, you know, we're quite nicely placed in Tasmania being the only university here to do that. But did you want to make a, a bit of a comment on that multidisciplinary and industry-based collaborative approach that you've taken and to um, a comment about the, su the successes that you've had? Our biggest success is, um, you know, the, the Grayscan explosive detector. Uh, we started working on that, I think, in 2006. Um, it took us till 2014 to show that we could detect explosives on a surface within a minute. Um, so that's what, eight years? Eight years, yeah, and about $3 million worth of research funding. The company licensed what we had developed and then took another four years, uh, and I don't know how many million, millions of dollars to take what we had built on the bench with, you know, sticky tape and silly putty um, and make it into a nice shiny box that actually worked every time and not just when you hold your mouth the right way, you know, typically what happens in an um, engineering slash research lab. Um, and so that, that was, um, launched by, uh, uh, Minister Pine at the time, uh, I think about two years ago. Uh, and they currently have orders for, from 28 different countries around the world, which is actually really exciting. There's a, uh, there's a whole heap of challenges in, in, you know, doing this type of very applied industry focused research. Um, we, we, we've done and, and the company have done so much research that will never be published because of, uh, you know, the commercial sensitivity of that. Um, and that's just one of the trade-offs that we have had to make is that while we're not going to publish that paper in, um, you know, science or nature, perhaps, um, instead we are hopefully going to have a product that's being used around the world, helping to make people's lives safer uh, on, a, on an hourly, daily basis. Um, I'm not sure which one's more valuable, um, but I, I certainly think that, um, you know, that making a, a difference in the world is, is really something that I've wanted to do. Working with industry is just an essential part of that happening um, and knowing how to work with industry um, and knowing when to, uh, you know, hand over your baby, so to speak, and let someone else raise it um, and finish off that its education so that it can contribute to the world is a, is a really tough challenge. Um, and I think is one of the reasons why a lot of academic research doesn't make it out because there is that uh, reluctance to, to, you know, hand over. What a beautiful sentiment to wrap up the show for the week. And I think that it's wonderful to see a success story of something that's been so closely aligned to industry from the get-go. And it's probably where many of us in science are going. But it's also of interest for our listeners who aren't in STEM at all to know how many years go into having something that makes it commercially viable and on as a, as a product. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. And our expert guests have been Professor Michael Bradmore and PhD candidate Mustafa Adel. My name is Neve Chapman and I'd like to thank my co-host Alana Russell. If you've enjoyed what we've done today please let us know on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or like and subscribe to whatever podcast streaming service you're using and if you could give us a review that would really help us spread the good word of science to an even larger audience. Until next time thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team.
That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.